بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله We are now at lesson 65 in the seerah of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم and we have been discussing Badr for quite a while and we're still not quite out of Badr we are examining that part in the seerah where the Prophet ﷺ leaves Badr and makes his way back to Medina. While still there at Badr and before setting out to return to Medina, the Prophet ﷺ sent two companions ahead of him to Medina to deliver the news of the Muslim victory. He sent Sayyiduna Abdullah ibn Rawaha and he sent Zayd ibn al-Haritha to go to Medina to deliver the good news. So it is said that Sayyiduna Abdullah ibn Rawaha was to enter from the north of Medina, from Uthayl, and Zayd ibn al-Haritha was to enter from the south in a place called Safira. And the narrations mentioned that Zayd ibn al-Haritha rode to Medina on al-Qaswa, What's al-Qaswa? That is the camel belonging to the Prophet ﷺ. So he had the honor of riding on the camel of Rasulullah ﷺ. So they entered Medina, Zayd and Abdullah bin Rawaha. As they entered, they entered proclaiming quite loudly the takbirat, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allah protected the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he granted us victory. So Zayd is entering Medina shouting takbirat and he's also shouting the names of those Quraysh who were slain at the Battle of Badr. And Abdullah bin Rawah is doing the same thing while the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the Muslims are about a day or two days behind. So meanwhile, as the Prophet ﷺ remained in Badr for three days, he and the companions make their way north to Medina, and this was on the 20th of Ramadan, and Zayd and Abdullah were about a day or two ahead of them. Now, something happened in Medina at the same time as Zayd and Abdullah entered Medina. One of the interesting events that took place was that the moment before Zayd entered Medina, and shouted victory, Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan was burying Ruqayya, the daughter of the Prophet The hadith mentioned that he heard the cry of victory the moment he was burying his beloved wife and the beloved daughter of Rasulullah As he was burying her in a state of grief, he heard the takbirat and the cries of victory. So he was asking what was going on and he was told that the Muslims were victorious at Badr. This is very interesting when you put it together because after the persecution in Mecca and then their migration to Medina and then their struggle to establish this new community there in the city of Medina, the victory of Badr was actually a high point in this period for the Ummah. It was a high point of great joy and happiness for the Ummah. Consider the persecution they were dealing with in Mecca. Consider the difficulties of the Hijrah. Consider the difficulties of establishing this new community in Medina. The battle of Badr and the victory at Badr was a high point of joy and happiness for the community. Yet that happiness is communicated at the exact same time Uthman is burying the beloved daughter of the Prophet So there is a, a unique message here. There's a significant message here because nothing is a coincidence. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing is fortuitous. 
when Sayyiduna Uthman is burying Ruqayya and he hears the victory of the Muslims at Badr, you have this saddening event and this gladdening event. Right? The news of victory combined with the, lo- the loss of his wife and the beloved daughter of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So the lesson here is that in times of joy and success, there will always be periods of trial and tribulations because we are in the dunya. The nature of dunya, the lower world, is that you have your good times and your bad times, your ups and your downs. And everything in our life as Muslims is experiencing the jalal and the jamal, the the beauty, the ease, as well as the rigor and majesty. And that's the reality. And every Muslim is always faced with two qualities to have. Either they're experiencing something that requires shukr, gratitude, or they're experiencing something that requires sabr. Our lives are an ebb and flow between sabr and shukr. So here you have shukr with the victory of Badr, and you also have sabr in enduring the loss of the beloved daughter of the Prophet ﷺ. Why didn't Uthman go to Badr in the first place? It's because he stayed behind with the legitimate excuse, caring for the beloved daughter Sayyida Ruqayya radiallahu anha. So here Zayd and Abdullah make their way back to Medina before the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims. In Medina, how many communities are there? We have the Ansar and the Muhajirun, which represent one community. Outside of them, who else do you have in Medina? You have the Jewish tribes. Anyone else? Hmm? You have the Munafiqun, right? You have the Munafiqun, which are a budding, growing movement. This is starting. You also have idol worshippers from the Aus and the Khazraj who had yet to become Muslim. That would very soon end after the victory of Badr. But you had these multiple communities in the city of Medina. So it's understandable that as the Muslims in Medina hear of this victory, they would be overjoyed with the cries of takbir. But how did the Jewish tribes of Medina receive news of the Muslim victory at Badr? How did the hypocrites receive that news? We look into the seerah and we see that this festering group of hypocrites that were emerging in Medina were not happy with this news at all. Why? Remember, they were in secret correspondence with Quraysh. And they were given assurances that Quraysh would help them to help undermine the political power of the Prophet But now the same people who had promised them that support have fallen in battle. So it makes their prospect of securing authority in Medina dimmer and dimmer by the day. So to counter this, the Munafiqun tried to stir doubts among the Muslims. Remember, the Prophet and the warriors of Badr are still making their way back. It's 100 plus miles, it's going to take a few days. So they start to sow doubts among the Muslims. So one of the Munafiqun said, Zayd has lost his mind, he's gone crazy, he's making this up. Muhammad has been killed. They start spreading this rumor that the Prophet ﷺ had been killed. And the Jewish tribes weren't happy with this either. News of the Muslim victory did not make them happy either because they did not have a vested interest in the success and safety and flourishing of Medina as a community under the leadership of Sayyidina Muhammad They preferred to live there and reap the benefits of their quote-unquote citizenship but they preferred the old days where they could take advantage of the discord and disunity between the Aus and the Khazraj. They weren't happy with this. Now, there's a verse in Surah Tawbah that is revealed about the Munafiqun and revealed about the Muslims and how they listen to the Munafiqun. Allah Ta'ala says about some of the believers, وَفِيكُمْ سَمَّعُونَ لَهُمْ Among you, 
are those who lend them an ear, who listen to them. The munafiqun say something, they spread a rumor, they spread a false doubt, and there are some people who are weak-minded, who they lend them an ear, they listen to them, and it impacts them, it affects them. So some of the Muslims didn't believe the glad tidings of Zayd ibn al-Haritha and Abdullah ibn Rawaha. They didn't believe it until they saw the captives with their very own eyes. Only when they saw the Prophet ﷺ and the captives being brought from the battle did they realize that Zayd and Abdullah were telling the truth the whole time. They were under the sway of the munafiqun saying that Zayd's just making this up, he's crazy, he's lost his mind, Muhammad's actually died because think about it, how many of them went out? Right? News had spread that the forces of Quraysh assembled. The numbers were known. They thought for certain that the Prophet ﷺ would have fallen in battle. But here comes the Prophet ﷺ to Medina. Not only himself, safe and sound, walhamdulillah. Not just the majority of the warriors of Badr, safe and sound. But they also have 70 prisoners. And they have belongings that were captured in battle. So that's going on in Medina. On the way to Medina, the Prophet ﷺ, a couple of things happened on the route between Badr and Medina. One of the things that happened was the division of the Ghana'im. We spoke about these spoils of war last week and how Allah Ta'ala revealed certain verses about how the Ghanima should be divided. While the Prophet ﷺ was on the road, going from the, the plains of Badr to Medina, he arrived at a place called Safra and he divided this Ghanima up. And one of the narrations say that as he was dividing up the Ghanima, he took one of the swords belonging to a Qurayshi known as Munabbih ibn al-Hajjaj. He had a very nice sword and the Prophet ﷺ took that sword for himself as Ghanima and that sword has a name. Does anyone want to venture a guess at the name of the sword? If you were in the Shema'il class, you might remember the name of the sword. Dhulfiqar, exactly. Dhulfiqar, the famous sword of the Prophet ﷺ, was the sword that belonged initially to Munabbih ibn al-Hajjaj. He took it as uh, spoils of war. He also took one of the camels of Abu Jahl. And this camel is called a Mahri camel. And a Mahri camel is a, a kind of camel that is very fast. In fact, the Mahri camel can even outrun horses. So this is a very good camel to use in battle if you want to use, you know, use cavalry. The Mahri camel is really good. The Prophet ﷺ took that camel as uh, Ghanima, and he would later use it in some of the battles. Now, as they're making their way back, something else happened. They're not yet in Medina, but they're almost there. And on their way, something happened. Now, one of the fiercest opponents of the Prophet ﷺ were Nadr ibn al-Harith, and Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayyid. These two people were very fierce opponents of the Prophet ﷺ. If you go back to the Meccan period, you might remember the story of Nadr ibn al-Harith. He appears a number of times in the Meccan period of the Seerah. When he goes to the assembly of Quraysh and begins to uh, denigrate the Prophet ﷺ, by telling stories that he heard from the Persian Empire. And he's the one who said that these verses that Muhammad is reciting are just asatirul awwaleen, the tales of the ancients. Well, that's Nadar ibn al-Harith. The one who went to the Jews of Medina and received the questions to ask the Prophet ﷺ, the ruh, the young men, the, the cave, this hadith, uh, this was Nadr ibn Harith who received that advice. He was a very fierce opponent. And Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayyid, we've talked about him as well. He is one of those people who actually spit on the Prophet These two were captured at Badr. They were captured. And as 
they're making their way back to Medina and the Prophet ﷺ stops at Safara where he divided the Ghanima. He realized, observing these two very carefully on the road, that they had zero remorse for their involvement in that persecution, zero remorse after being cap- uh, captured, and they made no attempt at all to smooth things out and to reconcile with the Prophet ﷺ. And so Rasulullah ﷺ ruled that their mischief, their fitna, is so much that they cannot be ransomed. Because if they're ransomed, they're not going to stop. They're going to continue to instigate and cause problems leading to greater harm in the long run. So the Prophet made an executive decision. And all of his decisions are executive decisions. But this was an executive decision that these two captives were not to be taken as captives back to Medina and ransomed. They were to be executed and to receive capital punishment for their crimes. That was the decision of Rasulullah as a punishment and a prevention for further evil and mischief. So it is said in the narrations that Ali ibn Abi Talib anhu was charged with executing Nadr ibn al-Harith and Asim ibn Thabit is the one who executed Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayyid. So this is an executive decision on their way back to Medina. So here we are in the Sira journey. We talked about getting there, camping out there, the battle itself, the three days in Badr. Now we're tracing the steps back to Medina. A couple of days later, the Prophet ﷺ enters Medina, alhamdulillah, victoriously and gratefully. Whenever Rasulullah ﷺ would enter a city with victory, he always entered it with humility and gratitude. We'll see later on in the conquest of Mecca that he wore a black turban, but as he was mounted with armor and sword, he entered the city of Mecca with his head bowed in humility. That's how he entered, with gratitude. And this was on the 22nd or the 23rd of Ramadan. So if we say that Zayd and Abdullah bin Rawaha entered on the 20th, then it took about three days for them to get there, more or less. So when they arrived in Medina, there was an individual by the name of Shukran. Shukran was a mawla, he was a freed slave. And his job was to deal with the captives of Badr. So he brought the 70 captives into Medina and the Prophet ﷺ divided these captives among the Sahaba. As he divided them up, giving this one to that one and this one to that one, he gave them all counsel. He said to them all, I entrust these captives to your good care. I entrust them to your good care. You have to look after them. And so we have lots of stories in the seerah about the individual experiences of different captives among Quraysh people who are being led into Medina in chains and who have certain experiences living among the Muslims until they get ransomed because the purpose of bringing them to Medina was to deliver the message to their family and tribes in Mecca that here they are and they are being held for ransom as prisoners. You pay the ransom, then the prisoners get freed and this generates income for this new community. So we have lots of stories about these captives. Ibn al-Hisham records uh, many of the ones I cite to you today. Uh, We start with the individual named Abu Aziz. Abu Aziz is known as Abu Aziz ibn Umayr. And he's related to someone. Who do you think he's related to? Mus'ab ibn Umayr. So Abu Aziz is the brother of Mus'ab ibn Umair. He was on the side of Quraysh fighting the Muslims. He gets captured and taken to Medina. So he tells this story. He says that he was given to a group of the Ansar as a captive. He said that whenever they sat down to eat, they would give him the bread and the meat and they would eat the dates in the water. I ask you, 
If you're hungry and you have the option of eating some dates with water or bread and meat, if you're not a vegan, <laughs> which one are you going to choose? The answer is obvious. It's the superior food. Yet they're giving him the meat and the bread and eating the dates and the water for themselves. This is how they were treating him. But he, you know, being this, this Arab, he, he had a sense of shame as a captive. He didn't want to do that. So he would put the bread and meat back for them to eat because there's a sense of dignity here. And they would insist and push the bread and meat back so that he can eat it. He would say, I did it out of embarrassment. I would just give it back to them, but they would put it right back in front of me. So that's the story of Abu Aziz with these Ansar who were responsible for holding him as a captive. Why, why are they being distributed? They're not the slaves of those Ansar. They're not slaves. They're captured. They're prisoners of war. But there's no jail. There's no central holding facility to put all 70 in. So the logical choice is to have each one with different members of the Ansar and others in Medina to look after them, keep close watch over them, and feed them and clothe them and take care of them until the time that their families pay the ransom and they can be sent back to Mecca. So that's what's going on here. They're not slaves. Another narration says that when Abu Aziz gets to Medina, he sees his brother and he says, yeah, <laughs> oh, he says, oh, my brother, you see me in this condition. How can you leave me like this? What does Mus'ab ibn Umair say? <laughs> he, says to, he says to the Ansar who have him, he says, make sure he doesn't escape because his mother, wallahi, she's very wealthy and she'll pay top dollar for him. Make sure you tighten those cords a little tighter and fetch a high price because his mother's got money. He's like, yeah, akhi, how can you do that? How can you say this? And he said to him, he says, Hada akhi dunak. He's talking about the Ansari. He says, this is my brother, not you. So it's a blood brother, but the Khuwadiniya, the religious brotherhood, is stronger in this sense. So that's the story of Abu Aziz. We have another story about someone who would later become Muslim too. Uh, and his name is Suhail ibn Amr. Suhail ibn Amr is one of the Sadat Quraysh. He's one of the, the chieftains. He's one of the leaders. And he was one of their gifted orators. He was very gifted at public speaking. And in that society, a society that is very oral with poetry and prose and, and giftedness in the language, someone who's gifted at orator, uh, of oratory is very dangerous as well. Because they can use their words, their eloquence to stir people up, to get them riled up, to get them into that state of hamiya, uh, jahiliya, this uh, energized frenzy to fight for something. So he is this orator captured at Badr and taken as a prisoner. So there's a couple of stories about him. One of the stories revolves around the wife of the Prophet the eldest wife, Sauda, radiallahu anha, she tells this story. She says that she was at the house of the Afra family. That name should sound familiar because Muawiyah ibn Afra, remember, was one of those who killed who? Abu Jahl. And what happened to him later in the battle? He was killed. So Sauda says that she was at the house of the Afra family giving condolences for him and his brother who were killed while the family is crying, the women folk are there, she's there. And as she's in their house, the word arrives that the Prophet ﷺ has arrived in Medina with the captives. She rushes home and she walks inside of her house and who does she find tied up in the house all by himself? Suhail ibn Amr the chieftain of Quraysh, Min Sadat al-Qawm. He's there inside of the house all by himself, tied up. Think about a very powerful head of state or a very powerful military general who's very well known. He's captured in battle. You walk in your house and he's just sitting there all tied up. It's very shocking. It's very shocking. So she sees him 
And in her state of shock, she said to him, You surrendered? You gave up? Wouldn't it have been better for you if you died honorably in battle? And as soon as she said that, she realized that she made a mistake. Because he was subdued. He's tied up. He's sitting there. She realized as soon as she said this that she made a mistake. And as she said that, who walks in the house? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He heard what she said. And he said to Sauda, Ya Sauda, do you stir people? Do you stir them, rile them up against Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? Why is he saying that? Think about it. This is normal for any man. If you're sitting there and you're not in the fight and someone, a woman at that, tells you it would have been better if you fought like a man. Any man would feel the drive to try to fight back again, to try one more time. They would be riled up by that kind of statement. So the Prophet ﷺ says, Do you stir people against Allah and His Messenger? Meaning, do you encourage them to rise up and fight back? Let them stay subdued. That's better. So she realizes this mistake. you know. But you got to understand where she's coming from. Because she is f- from the people. She knows Suhail ibn Amr as this brave man, this powerful man, this powerful orator, this formidable fighter, who commands the respect of his people, who carries himself as a leader among his qawm. And in the heat of the moment, from the shock of seeing him as a prisoner, she was shocked and says, why couldn't you fight back? That's who you are. You're this dignified, brave, courageous person, respected by your people. Why couldn't you fight to the very end? That's her shock. So when the Prophet rebuked her, saying, do you stir people against Allah and His Messenger? Sauda says, Wallahi, Ya Rasulullah, I lost sense of what I was saying when I saw him sitting like this and I couldn't control myself. It was just the shock of the moment seeing this image. And the Prophet ﷺ, he excused her for what she said. There's another incident, and this is not in Ibn Hisham's seerah. It's in some of the Maghazi traditions. Some of the Maghazi collections mentioned this, and I believe it's from Zuhri in his Mursal, uh, but it's cited in the works. It said that when Suhail ibn Amr was brought to Medina, some of the Muslims saw him there, and recognizing that he is this powerful leader of Quraysh, a very strong orator, whose words could potentially rile people up. Some of the Sahaba suggested to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, you should break out all his teeth. That's what they said. What did the Prophet ﷺ say? In the narration, it is related that he said, ﷺ, If I were to disfigure him, Allah would disfigure me. That's a very powerful statement. Now, it's mursal, so... And it's not without critique. The narration may have some weakness in it, but it's cited in these works. And it's cited by ulama approvingly. In fact, one of the great scholars of North Africa said, from this narration, you see something very powerful. When the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have said, if I was to disfigure him, Allah would disfigure me, it's an indication that Allah Ta'ala had love for Suhail ibn Amr and that ultimately he's going to be guided. So there's a lesson in that. Even your bitterest foes, there's a standard of ethics and behavior, a comportment you have with your enemy. And even those people who are great enemies may have their hearts opened. You don't know. The wheel is always turning. So that's the story of Suhail ibn Amr. So all the prisoners are here. These are a couple of prisoners and their stories. What's happening with the ransom? The narrations say that a message was sent to Quraysh on behalf of the Prophet ﷺ saying that there are prisoners that we're going to ransom off. What kind of prices were they fetching? The Sira works mentioned that there's, there were different prices. Uh, it is said that the ransom was set at between 1,000 
to 4,000 dirhams, each one according to his family's ability to pay that. So it is said that a free man, for instance, will be ransomed at 40 ounces of gold, and a mawla, a freed slave, would be ransomed at 20. So each ounce is 40 dirhams. And it all depended on the family uh, situation, the situation of the family back in Mecca and what they could afford. Some of the poorest of the prisoners were released without paying anything. Others were released in return for rendering certain services to the Muslim community. And one of the prominent services was teaching literacy, teaching people how to read and write. You have to understand, and we've said this many times before, Mecca in that day and age, although it is Ummul Qura, the mother of the cities, the mother of the towns, by our standards, Mecca would have been seen as a small town. That means that almost everyone knows everyone else. This means that when the Prophet ﷺ is ransoming these prisoners, he is fully aware of the economic situation of each person and their family and tribe and what they can afford and what they can't afford. So some fetch a high price, some fetch a medium price, some fetch a low price, some are let go altogether, and some render services to the community as a condition for their release. So we said one of the condi- one of the services was teaching people how to read and write. And this is one of those aspects of the seerah that a lot of people know about because of the fact that we live in this age of mass literacy. A lot of people highlight the fact that one of the services rendered to free themselves, those individuals of Quraysh who could read and write were told to teach people in Medina how to read and write. And once they were successful, they would be freed. Now that comes from a narration in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad and it mentions that these individuals had no money but they did have the ability to read and write. And so the Prophet ﷺ said that if they taught the children of the Ansar how to read and write and those children of the Ansar demonstrated the ability to read and write after the fact then they would be released without having to pay any money. And so When these children mastered reading and writing, those individuals would be set free. Among the children who learned under some of these captives how to read and write was Zayd ibn Thabit radiallahu anhu. That's very significant because Zayd ibn Thabit was one of the masters uh, not only of the Qur'an, but he also came to be a master at languages in general. One narration says, that he was able to teach himself Hebrew in 17 days. And if you know Arabic at the level of the Sahaba, that's not shocking. It's, it's a short time to learn a language, but he was so skilled in Arabic and also had a natural aptitude, and Allah gave him barakah. He was able to learn the language very, very quickly. Uh, another story about the captives is a very touching story. Uh, somewhat, uh, of the story of the man with many daughters. There was an individual by the name of Abu Azza al-Jumahi. Abu Azza al-Jumahi was one of the Quraysh fighting against the Muslims at Badr. He was captured and taken to Medina. And he didn't have, neither him nor his family, had the resources to pay any kind of ransom. And the hadith mentions that he went to the Prophet ﷺ and he says, You know that I don't have any money. And you know that I am in dire need and I have many young daughters. So because I'm in dire need and I have so many young daughters, I ask you that you please grant me my freedom. Because he had daughters to look after. And the Prophet ﷺ, he agreed to that. That he would free Abu Azza and Jumahi to go back and take care of his daughters, but with a condition. The condition, he said, is that when Abu Azza and Jumahi goes back to Mecca, that he never ever rises up and takes up arms against the Muslims or supports anyone who takes up arms to go fight the Muslims. So Abu Azza and Jumahi wanted to get back to Mecca to look after his daughters, and he agreed to that condition. 
But what do you think happened later? Do you think he kept the condition or do you think he broke it? What do you, what do you think? He broke it. He broke the condition and he was later captured at Uhud and killed. So it is what it is. Some kept their promises and others didn't. Another incident that occurred with the captives was with another man captured at Badr by the name of Abu al-As ibn al-Rabi'ah. Abu al-As ibn al-Rabi'ah was the husband of none other than Zainab bint Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Abu al-As ibn al-Rabi'ah is the husband of Zainab, the daughter of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is the son-in-law fighting against his father-in-law and his followers. Captured at Badr. What's going on here? Well, this marriage between Zainab and Abu al-As took place in Jahiliyyah. But how was Abu al-As towards his wife Zainab? Was there religious animosity between the two of them? The narrations say there were none. The narrations say that in fact, Abu al-As was a very loving husband. And that the differences in deen did not result in him ever mistreating her in any way whatsoever. Now you're asking, how can she be married to him if he is an idol worshiper of Quraysh from the Mushrikun and she's a Muslim? How can they two, the two be married? And the answer is they were married in Jahiliyyah and this took place, what, what year are we? The second year after Hijrah. This is before the verses were revealed in the Qur'an forbidding Muslim women being married to non-Muslim men, to whether they're from Ahlul Kitab or idol worshippers. So from it, by that standard, this was a legitimate marriage. Those have not been banned yet. So she's living in Mecca with her husband, Abu al-As ibn Rabi'ah, who goes out to Badr to fight against the father-in-law and the Muslims and gets captured in the process. It's a very strange story when you think about it because he never mistreated Zainab at all and he had great love for her. So he's captured and the ransom is set for him. He doesn't get out of this. The ransom has to be paid. So the narration mentioned by Ibn Hisham says that when the Meccans collected their monies and sent the ransom money to Medina to get their relatives freed, it is narrated that Zainab bint Muhammad radiallahu anha sent some money as well as a necklace which had been a wedding gift. This wedding gift from whom? From her mother, Sayyida Khadija radiallahu anha. So, you see where this is going. This is the necklace of Sayyida Khadija given to her beloved daughter Zainab on her wedding night. She puts that in with the money to be sent to ransom her husband. The money is with the caravan. It travels north. It gets to Medina. And when the Prophet ﷺ receives this money, among the monies he sees the necklace. When he sees this necklace, he is very moved by the compassion of his daughter Zainab. And that should come as no surprise because she is from the most compassionate Rahmat al-Alameen. He is also moved by the memories because he recognizes this necklace as belonging to his, his wife Sayyidah Khadija who gifted it to their daughter. So he's very moved with this and he said to the companions, if you see fit to free her captive and return the money, then do so. He's telling the companions, let him go and send the money back. But he put it to them. And the companions said, of course, of course, Ya Rasulullah. And so they freed Abu al ibn Rabir and they sent the money back. But not before another condition was taken. Remember 
Abu Azza al-Jumahi received a condition that he would not fight against the Muslims. He broke that. This time, in order for Abu al-As ibn Rabi'ah, the wife of Z- the husband of Zainab, to go back, the Prophet sallallahu took a condition with him, and this was done in secret. He said to him that when you get back, you have to release Zainab so she can come to Medina. And no one else can know this. So when he goes back, he's supposed to let her go on her own to Medina to make the hijrah away from her husband. So he agreed to this, which is amazing. He agreed to this. And this was a secret between him and the Prophet ﷺ. He was not supposed to disclose this to anyone. Yet the Prophet ﷺ met with... Zayd ibn al-Haritha and one of the Ansar and told them to make their way very secretly to Mecca and to wait outside to basically facilitate this. They didn't know what's going on. It was all kept very secret. It's kind of a, a very covert uh, mission to get his beloved daughter out of Mecca safely. So the story goes that he told Zayd ibn Harith and one of the Ansar to go after Abu al-As ibn Rabi'ah and to wait outside on the outskirts of Mecca to wait for someone to come at an appointed place and to make sure that this transfer where Zainab leaves, it goes smoothly. Like Their job is to make sure that this transfer goes smoothly and she's escorted safely back to Medina. But... Did it go smoothly? It didn't go smoothly at all. So the hadith mentions that when Abu al-As came back to Mecca, it aroused the suspicion of many of the people of Mecca because here he is coming back and he's got all of his money. Well, how is it that you come back with all of your money but... All the others are coming back empty-handed because we paid all this money to ransom. But all your ransom money is in your hands. You have money. This aroused their suspicion. So they felt that something was up. So he comes back to Mecca. He has the money with him. Rumors began to spread that something is up. Some kind of deal must have been made. And the inevitable conclusion is that they must want to send Zainab to Medina. Now who, who is effectively in charge of Mecca now? The chieftains have been slain. So who, who's the one chief that's pretty much in charge over everybody? Abu Sufyan. He made, all of this out, made out of all of this safely. So Abu Sufyan gets involved in this story. So here is Abu al-As ibn Rabi'ah. He's back in Mecca. He's with his wife, Zainab. He's got his ransom money. The rumors are going around. They're not aware of the rumors. They know that something is up. That they're going to find some way to get Zainab out of Mecca so that she can go to Medina. So one day, soon after he arrived, Zainab received a visitor. Of all the people to visit her, it was Hind who is Hind? Who is, who is her husband? Who's Hind's husband? Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan's basically the de facto head of the people now, the people of Mecca. He sends his wife. She goes and she visits Zainab. And she says to her, I heard that you're about to go back to your father. But there's no need for you to leave. But if you're going to leave, then just let me know before you head out so I can help you prepare your bags because women know what women need more than what men know what women need. Here she's presenting herself as this benefactor, this well-wisher and advisor. We don't want you to leave, but if you insist, just let me know ahead of time so I can help you pack your bags because women know how to help women pack better than men know how to help women pack. Do you think Zainab took the bait? She didn't take the bait. She's very intelligent. She knew that something was up. Why would she be this nice? Why would she say that? So what does she do? 
the hadith mentions that Zainab prepared discreetly. She made an arrangement with the brother-in-law of her husband, Abu Al-As. And this individual, this brother-in-law, his name was Kinana. This kind of begs the question, why would she have to go to the brother-in-law, her husband's brother-in-law, from a sibling, Kinana, to ask him to help her get out? Why not her husband help her pack her things and help her get out? That was the deal that he let her go. The ulama say the reason why he didn't do that is because he felt too ashamed. He was too embarrassed. Is he going to help his wife pack and walk with her? Out? That's kind of shameful for him. It would be embarrassing. He didn't, want him, he, didn't want, he didn't want to do that. So instead she goes to Kinana who helped her get her belongings together and get the camel ready and get her out of Mecca. But the problem started with Kinana. Like this plan did not go smoothly because of Kinana. Because Kinana, you know, so much for discreetness. It was supposed to be secretive and discreet, but Kinana, he comes with the camels all loaded and ready to take her in the middle of the day. Not a smart move. If you want to make a secret move, you do it at nighttime, discreetly. As Abu Bakr and the Prophet ﷺ made hijrah, they left in the nighttime. Here, he comes with the camels in the middle of the day. Everyone's around. It's a small town. Word's going to spread. He comes out and he puts her on it. And he's leading her out of Mecca in the middle of the day as people are seeing it in broad daylight. So people begin to speak. News travels very quickly. And so they sent people after him to stop him from taking her out. Quraysh sent a gathering to basically prevent her from going any further. And Kinana is leading these camel, this camel trying to protect her. So the narration says that at the time she's leaving, at this moment, she's pregnant. She's pregnant with a child. So she's on the camel, pregnant, being led by Kinana in the middle of the day, as Quraysh sent a group to stop them, essentially, Kinana wants to put up a fight, and this is where the tragedy occurred. So the hadith mentions that a Qurayshi by the name of Habbar ibn al-Aswad ibn al-Muttalib tried to stop them from leaving by throwing a spear at the camel that Zainab was on. What's going to happen? If the camel is, stuck, is struck with a spear, it's not going to ride to Medina. It's, it's game over. You're not going anywhere. He thrust this spear at the camel. It didn't hit the camel, but the, the camel gets scared and it rears up, causing Zainab to fall 15 feet or however many feet from not just the back of the camel, but the back of the camel as it's on its hind legs. It's further up. Think about how tall a camel is, the distance between the hump and the ground. Add a few feet for the distance of it rearing its legs up like this. She falls from that distance, lands on the ground. And if you've been to Mecca, you know it's not soft sand. This is hard rock. If you fall, you're really going to hurt yourself at that kind of distance. So she falls, and again, she's pregnant. She starts to bleed, and she suffered a miscarriage because of this fall. Now, some people say that she was so severely wounded that this is one of the reasons why she died a quote-unquote early death. So she falls off, she's wounded, she's hurt. This is what caused the miscarriage. Kinana, he jumps in front of her, and he says, I swear by Allah, anyone who approaches me, will taste my sword and my bow and my arrow and you know how good a marksman I am. It's clear. You take one step, I'm going to take you out. That's what he's saying to them. Quraysh, you know, they don't really want to get involved in this. They don't want to kill anybody at this stage. So they're not sure what to do. So they're looking at each other thinking, well, what are we going to do now? Then Abu Sufyan, he hears of this commotion. And he rushes on his horse to go calm the tensions. Because Kinana is about to fight them. And they're about to fight him. But these are tribesmen, you know. 
it's not so simple as a lone person being struck with a sword. This is someone with a tribal affiliation, with family. There are other consequences to consider. Abu Sufyan, the de facto leader, hears about this, gets on the horse, rushes to the scene in order to calm the situation. So he goes to Zainab, wounded, injured Zainab, and he tells those Quraysh people to leave. And then he goes and tells Kinana, he says, you acted foolishly. That was really silly what you did. Do you expect us to allow you to take Zainab out in broad daylight? He said, go back to the people, wait for some time, and when people stop talking about this, you can quietly hand her over to her father because we have no reason to keep her here. Abu Sufyan's a wise man. He's not going to do this publicly and allow her to leave. But he's telling Kinada to do this discreetly after things have died down because there's no benefit for her staying there. He's being very pragmatic. So in the middle of the night, a few days later, after the talk had died down, once again, Kinana took Zainab bint Muhammad, put her on the camel, and takes her to the spot where she was supposed to go and who was there waiting for her, Zaid and the other Ansari. They've been waiting these days for her to arrive. Kinana hands, hands her over and they escort her to Medina. And it said in the seerah that she arrived in Medina exactly one month after Badr. So this is a few weeks between the victory at Badr and her getting to Medina as a muhajira. And she had a miscarriage due to this injury. And as we said, some of the ulama of seerah say that that injury is also what caused her quote-unquote early death. And early death here is relative. It means relative to the norm. It's the immediate cause of what caused her death. Uh, her young death, right? And inshallah, we'll stop here. Next week, we're going to look at what was going on with the people of Mecca when they received news that so many of their chieftains were cut down in battle and suffered a humiliating defeat. We'll also look at some of the uh, deaths as well as marriages that occurred during this time. And we talk a little bit about the Ahlul Sufa. The, the homeless among the companions who lived in the masjid and the interval between Badr and the next battle which is Uhud because it's coming in very short order in the third year after the Hijrah Badr was in year two Uhud is in year three so this is really a space between Badr and Uhud that we're talking about next week bi'ithnillahi ta'ala والله رسوله أعلم وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم